All right. Yeah. Episode three. Um, we back. See you, good man. Yep. Uh, so so far so good. We've had a couple episodes. Uh, mm-hmm. I've gotten good feedback. You know, feedback's a funny thing because I post links on LinkedIn to our podcast. And I actually am pretty active on LinkedIn, not pretty active, but I'll say stuff on LinkedIn, right? That maybe is challenging the industry, et cetera. What's amazing to me is I get feedback in DMs and publicly nobody says that. People will like stuff or whatever, and I don't care. I'm not looking for likes or validation, but what's concerning to me is that if you believe in something, if you really like something, if you want to support something, my belief is I want to do it publicly so that this person has more of a a voice or more of a uh, audience. Um, but anyway, I mean, it's, it's, it's been good feedback and people really enjoyed it. I wish people would be more public about it. Um, I don't know what's controversial about the two of us having a podcast that they can't publicly celebrate it, but, um, you know, it's, it's been good feedback so far. You know, it's kind of like the, this is something we learned as we've been working on this HBO show. It's like, they kind of have a number of how many minorities can be, uh, present in a scene or a movie or a TV show. And uh, I don't know if the same thing is true with podcasts. Like, it's like, ah, it's too much. It's a little bit too much, too much seasoning. You know what I mean? Too yeah. much sasson on this, in this podcast. You know what I mean? I don't know if it's, uh, I'm like, wow, okay, there we go. It's funny you said when, um, I, when I had my shop in Silver Spring, Maryland, which was a transitionary time for Silver Spring, which is a nice word for gentrification and driving out minorities. Um, oh, you're frozen on my side, but I'm going to keep talking because last time I said that in the pod. Oh, there you are. All right. Um, so anyway, Barack Obama came to um, to uh, when he was campaigning because we were the largest Hispanic owned company in Maryland then. And, you know, they came with buses and news, but they sent an advanced team before and literally it was like, all right, we need like three Latino Latina ladies here. You know, we need some agents here. I'm like, and I got upset. I'm like, listen, man, like just film what you, what, what's here. Like, this is reality. And they're trying to curate it. Yeah. And I, I got really upset um, with the handlers. Cause I'm like, first of all, you don't have to cherry pick here. We're very much a minority, um, you know, focused entity. I don't want to be part of staging something, you know? And uh, it was just an insight into like, and not that, you know, and I think Barack Obama was a guy who very much represented minorities and, and, uh, very specific minorities, but it just bothered me how I was like, let's not curate something, you know, like let's not take something nice and good and something that we're doing uh, that's empowering and powerful and then turn it into BS. But yeah, it just reminded me of that. It was an interesting experience. Yeah. No, I feel you, bro. I, what I will say is actually one of my guys from Houston is in town now and a lot of the like black folks in the coffee industry I know have been really impacted by what you got to say. And just by hearing that conversation, um, because what a lot of us who are in this kind of niche specialty industry, the advice we get, the kind of trends we see, the models for us to follow of what success looks like oftentimes don't come from people who are minorities. Or I like to say people who are of the global majority, you know, like it doesn't come from that. And so because of that, it turns into a thing where like getting to hear a perspective you know, especially yours of like having been there and kind of seen the pitfalls that can happen. It is honestly encouraging to to hear from that. You know what I mean? So we still get people 
who talk about like your quote, some of your quotes from your last time being on our podcast, which was on the Coffee Black podcast, which was like, you know, don't let people borrow your blackness. Gems like that, like you people are still like, bro, I, that I think. But about, wait, you're gonna have to yeah, repeat that. It's coming so, back. Well, no, I think it's coming back because the way Riverside works is, I think it's like a separate upload. So it'll even if you're talking and I cut out, uh, or you're or I'm talking and you cut out, like it'll upload it on the back end. You know what I mean? All right, cool. So um, people now will hear so how shit. inept I am with technology because uh, I'm not gonna edit this. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> It, the same thing happened to me, uh, but yeah, it should be good. But yeah, man, it was crazy just to hear that. Like quotes, like "Don't let people borrow your blackness," um, has such a big impact. Just to see, like, oh, this is actually coming from a place of having had that happen to you. Like, people borrow your Latinoness for a month or for a business deal or for a launch or for a co-brand, and then they're gone, and you're left to deal with the realities your community is facing, and um, really controlling yeah. that narrative is just stuff like that. I think is important to hear for folks to hear. Cause you don't, if you don't hear that a lot of times, I feel like we end up um, just kind of trying to cobble together other people's success in business and what we can observe from that. And the reality is like being a minority in business, even being black and being Latino, those are two different journeys, but there's a lot we can learn from each other. And that requires us taking the time to sit down and talk. Because the standard plug and play business business model, I just if we're being honest, I don't think it, it reflects what most of us experience in these kinds of industries, these traditionally European industries. Yeah, and frankly, I mean, this is why I'm a big non-believer in Hispanic Heritage Month and things like that. Because like you said, you're going to celebrate me for 30 days and then forget about me for 330 days, 335 days, right? Mm -hmm. Um and are you really celebrating me or are you kind of putting me up on a, you know, false pedestal for the moment so that you can get eyeballs and credibility. And, you know, it's funny cause I participated in those things up until about 15 years ago. Now it's like, I don't want to recognize it. I don't want to talk about it. It's not Hispanic heritage month to me. It's Hispanic heritage life. You know, this is what I do. This is who I am. And Ooh, you want to celebrate what we do, then let's that's do a it. bar. I just, oh uh, my gosh, Hispanic heritage life. So, all right. So, that's kind of great. Uh, yeah. Go ahead. Yep. No, I was just going to say that I think it's crazy because we have people who reach out to us and they say, What are you, what are you guys doing for Black History Month? Like, we'd love to be a part of it. And I was like, Yo, it's coffee black, bro. Like, this is what we do every day. Yeah. We do this. Like, we, we didn't, I didn't wait to say, like, Wow, well, maybe in February we'll host a Black Barista exchange program and take four African-Americans to Africa for the first time and learn about pre-colonial coffee culture and decolonization strategies in Ethiopia and Rwanda. I just, I'm just doing it. We do, we leave it three weeks, right? So I'm not waiting for it to be Black History Month to do it. This is what we do every day, every year. Um, so it's kind of always interesting when we get those, because I've started asking people now, like, hey, yeah, we'd love to partner. However, Oftentimes, people reach out at this time of the year and they're only interested in a 30-day collaboration. We are not interested in those kind of collaborations, but I'd love to talk to you about like a, a long-term partnership. Would you be interested in carrying our coffee for multiple months or like a more of a, a more long-term commitment? Because those are the kind of people we want to be carrying our products, you know? Yeah. And people kind of look at me like... Them. Yeah, they look at me yeah. like, yo, you can't... Well, it what's been surprising is like a lot of these folks hadn't considered 
they're thinking it's Black History Month. We need to do something for black people. Cool. But like the thing that needs to be done is a thing that needs to happen every day. And so if yeah. this month makes you think about it, cool. But I'm just letting you know, like the communities we partner with, they they need equi- equity every every day of the year. It's not like a 28-day solution. And Black History Month is like the shortest month of the year. But I was like, yeah, I- I'm missing three days here. You know, but like I, I think it- it's one of them joints where like pushing that conversation, some people don't respond, but the ones that do actually say like, wow, okay, yeah, well, let me order three months worth of coffee. Normally we would order one, but like I see what you're saying. Let's do a screening. Let's actually change the music we play in our cafe. Like, let's do a more holistic thing. And to me, cross-culturally, that's way more valuable than like, a, you know, kind of a tokenizing kind of one-off thing. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. All right. So I think one of the things I wanted to start doing and you and I discussed is getting more topic-specific in podcasts. And because I think you and I could run away into yeah. just a rabbit hole of conversations. And one of the things I think you and I talk about a lot, For sure. I think it's good to talk about publicly is the premise of my personal belief, and I'm not saying it's the right way to look at things, of when you build a business or you start a business, you know, at first it's exciting and fun and you have an idea or a product or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. My belief, because it's worked for me, is if you don't have a model designed and a model with a strategy, you could run into some problems, you know? And I think for me, in, in our conversations that you and I have been having for a long time, I think you probably can attest to the fact that I'm a big believer in like, what's your model? And I don't mean like, what's your business model? What's your business plan? Like the old fashioned, it's just, you know, understanding, okay, what's my product? What's my market segment where I'm going to stand out and have something different um, that's going to be competitive. So there's a basics of, is my product viable in the marketplace, et cetera. And then there's the model that is more of a financial one, right? Um, What is my margin? What is, you know, based on my cost of goods, uh, what's my product mix? What do I make more margin on? What's going to have more opportunity in the marketplace in building something? And I use the word model a lot because when you model something and I think of it in a, in a spreadsheet, right? Cause I'm an Excel person. If I want to say, well, what happens if I add a zero to those sales of this product and I have a model that's designed out, I can see what happens, right? Or what happens if the next month is tough and I remove a zero? But what happens if I hire this new person? And I think modeling out your business, from my perspective, first and foremost, financially, because that's how I'm wired and that's how I've done it, is super important because then you have a roadmap that's ones and zeros, black and white, to help you make decisions on how you get to maybe the finish line or or the goalposts that you move every year. Um, So I think it's important. And I think it's important then into secondary things because it'll lead to who is my consumer? How do I get to that consumer? Meaning, do I go through a distributor? Do I go direct? Do I go? So the model then answers so many other questions. And I think that's an important conversation to have publicly because it's been a little bit disappointing and sad for me to see a lot of startups and a lot of companies and young people that I've tried to mentor and they don't know, right? Yeah. And you know, one of the things we can start on is, you know, we, we've talked about the fact that you came out during kind of the dot, not dot com, but like the e-commerce boom, right? Mm-hmm. And during the e-commerce boom, which was during pandemic, you had a website, you were selling, right? And the beauty yep. of that is you're selling directly. It was crazy. Yeah. 
It was just out of nowhere. And trust yeah, me, we benefited from wild, it just by, by having a website, right? But the problem is, yep. once you have that and you're saying, well, I can take X product, buy for a dollar, sell it for five. That's a great, a ridiculous margin. That's, you know, kind of in line with what I think, you know, a 20% cost of goods is probably what was in line for a lot of these new startups. But the reality is, A, that boom is gone. And B, yeah, it's got a cap to it, right? Like, you, you've, you've only reached, you've already reached pretty much 80% of the people you're going to reach by just having the website, right? So mm -hmm. then people like you and people who are smart enough to say, okay, what are my other outlets? We'll say, okay, what are my right. other outlets? It's grocery, it's distributors, it's everything else, Amazon, whatever it might be. And then my question is, okay, have you modeled your price points? Because you're not going to sell to Amazon or Target at the same price you sell to a consumer. And if you sell to them, do you know their markup, their margin, their logistics, their distributor network? Are they going to ask you to work with a broker? How much does the broker take? Are there chargebacks? And you have to model that out. So if my retail price point is 20 bucks and I'm selling to a grocery retailer who makes me work with a distributor who takes 40% and the broker who takes 7%, you have to literally map out how you're going to get to the consumer to have that same price point or lower. And I think it's a very important reality to face and to, a conversation to have because I think what I see a lot of people is get excited. Like, I want to sell on Amazon. Great. Do you have a model for it? And you and I have worked through that, right? And it's just like, okay, well, Amazon's going to take their commission and they ship it for you and they, fine, just build it in. But then if you don't have the price point already established, and I always say start with retail and then kind of back into it find yourself in problems, you know, and I think it's a very, very important reality that smart people like you are looking at now and saying, okay, I need to branch out beyond just the direct to consumer. And now I need to have the model to do so. So I think yeah, that's a very I think it's topic. so interesting. Yeah. I mean, cause we're literally talking through over the last month, like us launching our Amazon store and getting into like a lot of the logistics involved with that, which is very fascinating because I always say I'm an accidental entrepreneur. Like I'm a rapper first and I was a, you know, an educator, community activist. And we just, I just put a statement on my social media that was like, love black people like you love black coffee, you know, and I was selling like my music on my website. We had some dropship shirts and then that statement turned into, you know, six figures of revenue in, in like three months. So I was like, oh, okay, well, there we go. Now I have a business. Um, and we were doing like a coffee collaboration where I was working with another roaster on our website. Again, I just was like merch for my music. And um, once you have a six-figure business on your hand, and a lot of that came in the span of like two or three months, it's like, well, now I have to figure out how to run a business and how to figure out cash flow and so many things that I think I just got thrown into, which is one of the reasons why I'm really grateful that you reached out, you know what I mean? Because navigating that was new for me and it was new for a lot of the people in my community, the kids I was mentoring, my family members, a lot of us like, shoot, we don't know how to run an e-commerce business. You know, we, I didn't even realize I was in the CPG industry. You know, I, mean? I just accidentally got into it. And so doing that and then walking through how do you maximize the opportunities? How do you say no to certain opportunities? Which opportunities do you need to keep in your back pocket for later? I mean, there's so many. I think there's a whole episode of like all the things I'm still like reflecting on and learning from, from that much growth quickly. Because since that point, we've grown 50% every year. And so it's like the business is still growing. The idea is still reaching new people. 
Stan Lee says uh, every comic book is somebody's first. And I'm realizing every interaction with our company or with our brand is somebody's first. And there's all these years of information and products and, you know, projects and things that we've done, the documentaries or whatever that people never heard about. And so, like, how do we kind of manage like our existing products? How do we for me, I'm a creative first. So, like, I'm always about there's something very satisfying about doing a new idea and like getting it to market. And sometimes you know, what you and I talk about is like, like sometimes it's just not time yet. Like sometimes you need to reduce the amount of ideas that you have in the marketplace and find the best sellers. Like you're really the first person to push me to think like, what is the margin on this product and making a decision on what we advertise based on the margins and not just based on like the good the product can do and like the communities we're supporting and like the statement that we're trying to get across. Like I'm thinking about this very much so from a social impact perspective. And I think that's part of what makes us special, but it also can be like something that can be like a part of why we can't continue if we don't pivot to thinking about uh, like the margin and the model. And so like those are things that we start to think more about even as we pivot, like the market has definitely changed in my opinion from where it was two or three years ago, especially if you're a primarily e-commerce business. And thinking about the change in that market, like you have multiple options. Like I think like, okay, cool. One is, you know, we can re-engage old customers and try to reactivate them. And we have like, like our returning customer rate is up 44% right now. So that's great. I love that. Uh, we can try to get new customers, but it's really, really difficult. Like I was just talking to our team. We had this customer who like their, their order took mad long to get to them. It took like two weeks to get to them or three weeks and they were very upset. They sent an email, they left a bad review. Um, and that's not normal. So I was talking to the team about why that happened, what took their order so long to get to them. And it took, it. the order left our team, like our distribution center in like nine days, which is longer than usual. We know we try to get it out within seven days. So it was two days longer than usual. But then it sat with like UPS for five days. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, why did it sit with USPS for five days? Um, and then after that, it was like, okay, cool. Well, what was the issue? They, I think we needed to write the roast by date on there. And I think the sticker came off for like the roast by date. And so they were upset because I don't even know when this was roasted. So all that stuff was stuff that I look at and I'm like, wow, okay, there's a huge world. What's up, bud? Hey, daddy's on a phone call right now, man. Um, <laughs> Dr. Freeman. Uh, but there's a, there's a whole world. I love my kids, man. Um, <laughs> Yeah, being an entrepreneur with kids is a whole that's a whole episode too. Yeah. But yeah, I think there's a there's a whole world of information to be analyzed and to learn more about and to try to dive deeply into. But for me, I'm like, cool, what do we do with these this kind of data? How do we respond to it? It's just been a whole thing, man. And so I'm as I've looked at this, it's like, okay, our returning rate is great. But one of the things I sent sent our team was like it took nine interactions. They visited our website nine times before they made a purchase. And then because of a fulfillment error, like we just lost that customer that took nine interactions, nine touches before they made a purchase. So they visited our website. They went, they came back nine times before they bought anything. So it's like, okay, cool, man. Like that's something where we like, this is a very expensive <laughs> uh, uh, process to acquire this new customer. And it wasn't that difficult two years ago to get a new customer online. You know what no. I mean? Like a lot of our customers were here and then they just made a purchase that first time because they're at home with nothing to do. Um, and I'm curious to know, like, you know, I, what are you, what's been your experience with you all as you've monitored your online customer behavior? You know, I think what you're talking about is something important to 
as I talk about modeling, you know, having a business model, you know, I picture boxes, right? So it's like, you know, you have direct to consumer, you have, you know, big uh, club business, which I do a lot of, you have Amazon, you mm -hmm. have grocery. And so it's almost like these paths that you can take, but within each box, then you have to build the model, right? So the model is your overarching uh, business model. And then within each box, there's a mini model within that. So to, for example, for what you mentioned, okay, if we're going to, we're going to be in direct to consumer here are the, and I try to break everything down to its simplest points. Right. And I'll give you an example. We got very fortunate because in around 2017, I was having the same issues you're having, you're having, which is like, I was getting frustrated. Like why are customers taking so long to get coffee? Why are we not, you know, automating processes? What? So we invested into Shopify plus, and then we, you know, we did the website and we, we trained and the focus was then let's make sure that when somebody places an order, it goes out within 24 hours. So we're going to be running those roasters every day. We're going to be um, automating the flows where you place an order, you get a notification of, Hey, we're going to roast your coffee. It's going to take 24 hours. If you order after two, it won't ship the next day, but the day after set expectations and then train people to make sure that those flows are actually telling the truth because we then have to act upon them. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that's where it's very important to break things down like that. So for me, I started doing that. Um, we did two very important things in direct to consumer well before the whole e-commerce thing blew up uh, in 2020 or so, which was let's communicate very clearly and set expectations where, you know, we're going to do our best and, well, not do our best. We will get you this coffee um, the day after you order it. And we define the day after as if you order before 12, it's the next day. If you're after, after 12 or after two, I think it is, it's the following day. Um, we then have to chart out what we had to do. Okay. We're going to be roasting every day. We're going to, you know, in some batches, you're going to have to be very small and blah, blah, blah. Okay. We're, we can do that. Secondly, what we did is we took the pain of shipping costs out and we said, okay, we're going to have to model this and say shipping's included because I don't want you to have to calculate it 725 for, and we did the math. We talked to FedEx, UPS, everybody. We ended up going with FedEx because we got the best rates and we said, okay, we can absorb shipping after 40 bucks. So now it's every order over $40 is free shipping and it's next day uh, shipping. Our sales double over the course of the next couple of years because of not only customer retention, but then they, it, it just, it just, and one of the things I learned is, okay, in direct to consumer, it's value. Maybe like, let me start over indirect to consumer. It's convenience. It's story mm -hmm. and wanting to be part of something and wanting to support something. And then mm -hmm. value is a very distant third, extraordinarily distant. And this is why it's important to model your business because in that box of retail of direct to consumer, that's the, that's the, kind of business model that you design, right? So convenience, well, you better get your act together and get your orders out. You better do it nicely. You better tell a nice story. You better have uh, good social media, et cetera. But then when I switch into my big box box of my business model, it completely changes, yeah. right? It's value, it's quality, it's presentation, it's logistics, you know, because yeah. my, my uh, big box kind of club, consumer customers, they're not consumers. They're giving me real estate within their stores, within their clubs. Mm -hmm. And what they want to know is that when they cut a PO, you're going to ship 
based on the ship dates and arrival dates, the pallet's gonna come in looking perfect, your marketing merchandising clean, and the consumer's gonna get a great value. So then you understand, okay, for this box, I need to make sure I can drive my business model through a different hierarchy of, you know, mm-hmm. of variables. And I think it's super important because what ends up happening is people think, well, I'm going to take the, the variables that I was successful in when it, in a time when it wasn't very hard to be successful in direct to consumer. Um, and I'm going to copy, copy and paste that. And I'm going to go and sell to Amazon. I'm going to go and sell to target. I'm going to, well, you know, target is going to be more concerned about, are you giving me value? Are you, you know, all these retailers have to be competitive against each other. And by the way, have you priced in the fact that we're not going to just take you in as a, as a distributor straight to our stores, you're going to have to go to our distributor and they're going to have to get their cut. And on the distributor say, well, we can't deal with every supplier. You need a broker that represents a line of products. So understanding each opportunity allows you not only to price in, but allows you to understand what are the top three or four variables of priority that I need to have. And you have to switch that hat, right? Because what's made me successful in e-commerce isn't going to necessarily make me successful in club and grocery or, or an Amazon. And of course, then there's the kind of established reality of brand and quality and story is always going to be in all those. Yeah. It just, it changes in priorities. Unfortunately, I wish it didn't. I wish story and I wish impact was a reality for all outlets, but it's not necessarily true. Yeah. If you had to think through, and this is so good, man, because specifically thinking about a lot of accidental entrepreneurs or I'll call them oopsapreneurs, you know what I mean? Where you're like, you, you fall into a business. And I think you're seeing that happen more and more as people transition from the arts into business or into commerce, right? And like, really, if you're in the arts, you're a small business. But I think a lot of people in the music industry don't necessarily think about that. That's not the kind of information we get coming into it. It's about what you're creating. And the same thing is true, I would say, for people who are in that social impact space. But as you're thinking about it, like, what would be the advice that you would give to someone who I think a lot of my friends in, in, in coffee are in similar spaces where they have a great story, they're used to social media because they were marketing their music. Actually, we're working right now with a couple of entrepreneurs who are thinking about like getting into different kinds of merchandise for their business. But they're, I mean, they're traditionally musicians, pretty successful musicians, but the margins on music are terrible. Like if you've seen how much independent artists are getting on streams, it's like 0.0005% of a cent on a stream and so people are looking into man how can i find other ways to support me to support my art through merchandise which is really starting a small business in a lot of ways what would you say are the most important things to consider when you have a strong story you have a strong brand but you're trying to decide on what business model you want to leverage that brand into you know i think it's important to pull back and understand really is my brand different is my brand mm. does it stand out because maybe to me it feels special or uh, i think especially coffee is a great great example of it right especially coffee got into this crazy kind of um echo chamber where they all amongst each other hyped each other up to the point you go to any hyper specialty coffee that was designed and built in the last seven years and they all look the same 
right? Mm -hmm. And the oversimplified mm -hmm. packaging and the kind of like Apple store vibe and and then minimalism. Yeah, and then you hear the, the Edison, story. The Edison about, lights. Exactly. And they all yeah, talk about we, how different they are. It's like, well, you you think you're different, but you're actually kind of all the same. So mm -hmm. they've kitted them. And then I'll tell you one thing up front that quality is not a differentiator in coffee. Yeah. Quality is a choice. I'm going to only buy 87 point coffee. You just made a decision, right? So thinking because mm -hmm. today I could turn around and be like, Hey guys, we're only buying 88 point coffees now. It's just a decision. So. It, it, and can I, I say mean, something about that? Yeah. I think that's one of the things too, that we were, when we were building our business. I was looking at a lot of the value propositions and honestly, it's about privilege in a lot of ways. Like I started my business with negative money. Literally, we had negative $700 in the bank. I just lost my job. I got a kid on the way. It was right before the pandemic. And I was like, I got to do something because I got to take care of my family. And I wanted to still be something where I'm providing for my community. And I don't think teaching is going to be a sustainable path to do that, even though I love my community. And like my wife was good enough to, she's super smart. She went and got a work from home job. And, you know, nine months later, we had a six-figure business, so it, it worked out. But uh, for me, man, I was just like, yo, I don't know the first thing about what we're doing, but I started. But what I didn't realize is because we grew so fast, right, I was in a position where I was always kind of like paying things forward, right, because I had cash on hand, but we kind of grew suit way faster than I was planning on it. And um, it put us in a position where our cash flow was weird. And so now that we're maturing as a business, I'm learning trial by fire, really, plus conversations with you about how to stabilize a lot of these things, about how to build a path forward, uh, what the next stage of our business looks like. But like prior to that, I didn't have any idea. And when I looked at coffee, man, a lot of people were just like, we have the best coffee. To be honest, when I started, I didn't have money to buy the best coffee. Like I didn't have money to buy, because I didn't have any money. I just had like pre-orders, you know what I mean? And I had like, marketing strategies and so like um i didn't have money to say i'm gonna go drop a you know twelve twenty thousand dollars on this really expensive anaerobic process if you're not in coffee these are just like hyper specialty niche limited rare coffees right so i didn't have coffee money to spend money on that right so i was like man let me let me be the most authentic version of myself and i can make the most authentic connection with the people i want to partner with and that's what i wanted to do anyway but there was always this pressure to feel like well, some random roaster is dropping this hyper limited uh, 12 adjective coffee. And that's what being a good coffee roaster is. And I couldn't, I literally couldn't play that game if I wanted to. And also I didn't want to play that game. So I was like, I think a lot of people feel pressured to try to do something that one, they realistically, if you're a minority, listen to this, like a lot of the reality, most of us don't have loans or we don't have parents who can give us money. You're just starting. So you're bootstrapping for a super long time. And then two, even if you did, there are people who've been playing that game for the last 20, 25, 30 years, and they have the relationships to edge you out, even if you could compete with the price that they're paying for whatever cup of excellence auction lot they're buying. And I'm curious to know your thoughts on that. Like, on top of the quality thing, there's also the reality that quality turns into a privilege conversation. Like, who has the money to spend the most money on the quote-unquote most quality product? And oftentimes that's not us. It's not people like you and me. Yeah. And actually it's very much not people like you and me. And I can tell you from, a, you know, um, 
I tell this story all the time and I talked about it in the producer Rosa Forum in El Salvador and I told producers a story and they were blown away when I started the business and we were Cafe Mayorga and we were buying really nice coffees before even the whole microlot world existed. And I was buying really nice coffees from small co-ops and from small producers. And we got into a, a local uh, chain of grocery stores and we were all excited. I went to look for the coffee. I couldn't find it. It was in the ethnic section, uh, the Hispanic section with the tortillas and beans. And I called with the, the tortillas and, hey, and beans? No. Yeah. And I said, well, what's going on? And they're like, well, you're an ethnic product. And I said, well, oh my God. I'm ethnic and I'm from Latin America. And just so you know, all coffee is an ethnic product because all coffee comes That's from That's what I was about to say. Of, you know, there's no white guy in Kansas growing coffee. So, and know, also that dude is ethnic too. He got an ethnicity. Yeah. Like, yeah. why is the it? The problem is the hierarchy of ethnicity, I think, right? So, right. my the, comment the to him ethnicity was, is just normal. Well, and that's what I, and, and to me, and I got very upset with the buyer said, so you're telling me the coffee from the countries where I grew up is not validated as quality when somebody that speaks Spanish and immigrated into the United States sells it. It's only validated as quality when somebody of a different social status is putting their name on it. Because when Mayorga puts wow. their Hispanic name on it, it belongs with tortillas. When Pete's or some other, you know, non-ethnic uh, name goes on it, they don't go next to the tortillas. They go in the specialty coffee aisle because, and to me, that was an eye-opener, right? And I really, and, and it was challenging, but then I said, well, this is what I need to lean into. You know, I've learned to, you know, where a lot of people look at a situation and they think, well, how do I then become more accepted, uh, in this hierarchy, mm. I thought the opposite. I said, well, I got to change this. You know, I got to yeah. change this. Now, I did change my company name. I'll admit that. We went from Cafe to Mayorga to Mayorga Coffee. So I sold out a little bit to, to that degree because I had to. I had to, like, you know, and it was a shitty reality where it's just like, man, if you're Hispanic in the coffee industry, you're not respected as a purveyor of quality, which I hate the word purvey, but, wow. you know, and but these coffees are coming from our countries and I have no yeah. voice to show the quality of my coffees and the things from my country in today's environment, speaking in the nineties, uh, early two thousands. But if someone just happens to put on their leather apron and they're from Seattle and they got a cool haircut all of a sudden, like, Oh yeah. These mustache, handlebar mustache. Yeah. And I see that. I see that to this day. We sell coffees right now when we were selling Las Lajas, Perla Negra, and we're selling, top, top quality stuff. I was selling it for, you know, $14.99, $17.99. And our competitors were selling the same coffee that they're buying two bags of for $29.99 and getting all this hype and all these people are so quality focused. And like, my is more quality focused across the board. And by the way, these little lots they buy, we also buy little lots, but to us, it's 30 bags to their two, 50 bags, 100 bags to the hundreds of containers we buy of the nice 83 point coffee. So back to the original topic. I mean, I think, um, look, quality to me should be given, right? If I'm in a, a product mm -hmm. business where you're consuming something and I sit there and I have to tell you about my quality, then I don't know, I, I, I have no point of differentiation. And I tell my clients that, you know, and, and I, I say, it's, it's my buyers and I say, look, I don't sit here and talk about quality, but if you want to know anything about our quality, I'll tell you about my curators and our food scientists and the fact that we never reject coffee because we're proving it and we're cupping it 
before it's even processed in the mills. And, you know, we're approving samples in Latin America before it ships. And there's no, I can talk to you about quality and I can talk to you about how buying directly from the same farmer for the last 12 years gives you a, a consistency and quality that nobody can get, buy out of, you know, a New York coffee that's been sitting there and these guys are hunting for coffee. And so mm. to me, that premise is, you know, I think if you're pushing yourself as like some special coffee, uh, quality seeker finder or buyer then you got a short you got a short uh and, and the reality is like all of us can buy the same coffees right like if you're especially if you're working with a with with you know one of the four or five different importers that it's we all, all the same know, importers yeah like, it's the same importers but you're and i talk about this too where it's like you're the other thing i don't like about the quality proposition right and I, this is like we just launched our coffee at the Memphis Art Museum. We did a five course brunch and uh, with this chef that's there who's been trying to get my coffee in there for maybe two years. He's like, bro, y'all have the best coffee in Memphis. You know what I mean? Like, this is the best cup I've, I've ever tasted. And I've never, you'll never see me on Instagram saying that, but people tell me that all the time, right? Which says something, right? Like, I'm not marketing it. I'm talking about the story. I'm talking about how authentic this is, how returning coffee back to its roots. Right. And how we're connecting those roots so that the people who grew it can participate in the fruits. Like, that's what I care about. Right. I tell I care about that. I care about the art. I care about the opportunities it's going to create for youth in our community. Um, I care about creating an all black supply chain. And also, we just happen to roast our ass off. You know what I mean? Like, and <laughs> but that's like if you this that's something specifically in the black community. Nobody cares how good your coffee is. You know why? Because most black folks I know don't even drink coffee in the first place. So when I'm bringing coffee to people, the, the argument is not, well, how good is your coffee? The argument is, can coffee be good at all? And I can make that point with a well-roasted 81, with a well-roasted 78, or with a well-roasted 88, which is what the Gucci Mane that we serve is and has been, at least for the last couple of harvests. So it's like, but that frees me up to be able to work with the producers we work with because I'm not solely dependent on their work. Like we're gonna work just as hard, if not harder, to provide the best version of this coffee. And that's shout out to my wife and the roasting team and like our branding team to be able to communicate the story and set the expectations. So when the customer gets the coffee, like even a coffee we just did from these, uh, like a group of all African descendant Brazilian farmers through Phyllis Johnson with BD Imports. And it's, that coffee is so special to me, and I'm putting money is probably going to be our next best-selling coffee after Gucci Mane because it's, like, really taking off. But, like, the, the reality is most people would have missed on that coffee because all they looked at was the cupping score and not the story. We looked at the story, and then, I don't even, to be honest, I couldn't even tell you the cupping score. It might have cupped super great, but I know it wasn't a hyper-anaerobic, strawberry-processed, carbonic-macerated kryptonite-infused, whatever. It was just a, a natural coffee from Brazil, a collective lot. It was a pea berry. And we got it, and we roasted it, and we cupped it, and we, like, create a really beautiful profile for it, and we named it Baile Funk. And now, because Baile Funk is, like, this kind of form of hip-hop that's der derived from, like, the Africans who were in Brazil, and it's kind of, like, it's Brazilian, it's got those rhythms, it's African, it's funky. We named the coffee that because it mirrored that to me. And again, that's me as a musician kind of bringing that into our story. But now, like, my dad is texting me, yo, this, uh, this, uh, this Bilet Funk, it's funky. I like this coffee. Like, it's, and maybe if we would have named it something else, like something, something, estate, something, 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 and somebody said it was funky, funky would have been a bad thing. 
But because I'm I'm talking about it from our culture's perspective, we love the funk. Now it's like, oh, it's funky. I, I rock with it. This is a this is an asset to the coffee. And also because of the way we roasted, and you know, my wife has done an amazing job like highlighting like some of the the more savory, almost like uh, I say it's like frosted flakes. You know what I mean? But the point is like that element in our approach. We look at every coffee as something that has a unique story to tell, and we're not trying to enforce this quality standard on the coffee. We're trying to bring the best quality out of each coffee because we believe every coffee, like every person, has a unique quality and unique story to tell. Um, and I think that's just something that I, I economically, I was put it, I was, I couldn't have had another perspective if I wanted to, but also the way I was raised, even if I could, like, I'm just not comfortable with this kind of imperialist quality first if your coffee's not good enough don't even send it to me perspective because because like there were these did i tell you about these folks on twitter no about ethiopian coffee like they were they were talking on twitter and um you know there's a lot of conflict happening in ethiopia we talked about that before the call and so coffee some of the company scores have varied by a couple points and i there's a famine there was a famine last year and like uh there people were like online these coffee roasters like man what's going on with all the all the samples from ethiopia like they're just not up to snuff you know i don't even think we're gonna have anything on our menu because i don't know what's going on like this is ridiculous and i just commented like yo is this how y'all interact with your partners like the all the all the branding you do to justify the 30 dollar price because you're saying you're using this extra money to help farmers when those farmers actually need your help you pull out like that's how y'all was raised. Like that's Buddy, that's interesting. That is, is all I, <laughs> that is my biggest. I think that's what made me almost turn a little bit, well, turn a lot on the whole hyper specialty movement. I've seen that abandonment be the norm, where when the story yeah. fits for the roaster and it feels good to me and it makes me look good, I'm gonna support you. But you had a bad weather year or you had coffee rust. I mean, I got into Chia. I sell tens of millions of pounds of Chia today because I had to help farmers save their crop, their, 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 their farms from being taken by the social lenders who were lending at 19% were threatening to steal take farms back from producers. Um, because Can we talk about that? You just went so quick. <laughs> well, That's let me finish the message and then I'll tell you. And because these roasters were basically like, oh, you have rust. You only have 20% of the coffee you committed to us. You're in default, you know, and we're never buying from you again. And goodbye. And during pandemic, we bought 10, 11 containers of coffee. By container, I mean 42,000 pounds each. So we're talking half a million pounds, close to half a million pounds of coffee we bought. That was defaulted on by roasters who were partners of the farmers who why? Because, oh, well, our cafes, we're not doing any business. Uh, you know, the pandemic, uh, you know, is hurting my business. So basically it's goodbye and done. But here's the thing. Wow. Here's what gets me the most. When a producer can't deliver for a roaster or a producer has quality issues based on environment or whatever it might be, that roaster is done. You're blacklisted. When the roaster defaults and turns their back on a producer, they have the nerve to come back the next year and be like, all right, what are we doing? And the producer who lacks options generally will figure it out with them. So think about the wow. inequality. And I, I got to tell you, you know, during, um, during the rust, uh, no, actually before the, the year before the rust, the co-op we were working with in Nicaragua defaulted on us on an agreement. 
I was really upset. And I was telling my now wife who worked for with me and, and um, managed the relationships with the producers. And I was like, look, I can't deal with these guys. I can't build a business around them. They're unreliable, blah, blah, blah. And I was going off and I was going to, you know, this was you know, 12 years ago or so. And she just stopped and she looked at me. She said, you know, you can make your own decisions because I was her boss then. She said, but just so you know, if you choose to walk away from them, you're basically reinforcing the mentality that um, they're disposable and you're re-entrenching this uh, lack of trust that they have that's been created by the colonialism and the colonialist mentality that's you know permeated in this industry. And basically just planted that. Wow. And I was like, you're right. I see why you was like, yeah, yeah, that's wifey right yeah. there. Yeah. So, so but, basically but to, just, talk, to, talk to me about that, right? Because I'm not there yet, right? Like, we're not at a point where we've had, a, hopefully we won't, but how did you navigate that, the reality of like, okay, I do have some degree of privilege because I'm an American now, and obviously we have the financial leverage here, but at the same time, I'm a man, you're, I'm assuming a group of men. And our word is everything, right? And so if we break our word to each other, um, you know, what do we have? But at the same time, like, these, it's so normalized for producing, for not for, for roasters to break their word, for importers to break their word. Like, it, it kind of seems like the grace should go both ways. How do you navigate that? For those of us who are listening to you, even if you're not in the coffee industry, you're a small business, you're building a supply chain, maybe you're trying to do it in a way that connects back to your motherland, this happens to you, like what, what's the next step for those people? How do you navigate that? Well, I'll tell you the first thing that hit me, and this is something that generally is a non-negotiable for me is I have values, right? And you talk, touch on some of them, right? Yeah. And, you know, I always refer back to my son because I think that's the best way to communicate how I communicate and how I even recognize my own values, right? When I try to tell my son what my priorities mm -hmm. are for him, I realize like, well, those are my values. I very much believe in them. And so for me, I think a lot of those values were tested. Um, so I think what got me most upset with them was I was in Nicaragua twice. We had calls, we were WhatsApping, we were talking, and at no point did they tell me anything was wrong, right? It was when it was time to ship. So for me, I actually took it personally because I'm like, man, I'm down here. I'm, I'm working. I'm, I'm up in the North of Nicaragua a week at a time, 10 days at a time. We're here working together, building something. And you couldn't sit me down in the moment, like, hey, we're seeing these problems. And then the second time, like, hey, you know what? These problems are becoming more uh, problematic. And then on the third time. So for me, it felt a bit like a betrayal. And I took it more personally because it hit on my personal values of if we have a partnership yeah. and we have an obligation to each other, there's also an obligation of telling me reality, you know, and, and letting me understand. Yeah. And I even told my, my, I told my wife this when we started dating. I said, listen, I like reality, even if it hurts, right? If you get to the point where you don't want to be with me or if you want to be with somebody else, I want to know now because I want that reality to be in my lap so I can then make decisions around it. And I think that's what got, I felt betrayed and I felt super disappointed that I felt like the effort and the commitment I'd made maybe hadn't been reciprocated back to me. So I, I took it very personally. Um, How did you kind of process that? How did you move past it? Well, after my- Or through it even planted this kind of challenge in front of me of like, well, you talk a big game. Are you going to, mm -hmm. you know, I was like, okay, she's right. You know, and I came back to them. I said, listen, let's sort this out. But before we do, we need to have a conversation because here's how I operate. You know, I'll bend over backwards. I'll come here. I'll do what it takes. If you guys didn't get into financial trouble, I'll help you figure it out. 
but you owe me the same thing in return, which is communication, honesty, transparency. And I need those tough conversations because those tough conversations, and they really taught me that it's just, it's the mentality that unfortunately people in my countries have had to adapt to, which is like, we can't tell the client the bad news or, or they'll, we'll lose them. Let's figure it out. Let's see if we can figure it out. And it's like this fear of abandonment. That wow. They have. And so ultimately, I yeah, think I so, just processed it wow. with them, had the conversations. Uh, and I also explained to them, look, and at the end of the day, this is a business, right? Uh, we have real money at stake here. We have clients that expect our product and our, you know, consistency and, and also walking them through the impact. Because I think sometimes we forget that our decisions that aren't the best ones, they don't just impact the person we're talking to. They, they, there's there's a lot of people behind that, right? And especially for me as a business. Um, honestly, though, I got to be fully transparent that getting through that moment, just like getting through a lot of tough moments, I can only do because I own 100% of this company. I have no investors. And I don't answer to anybody. Because frankly, the reason a yeah. lot of these people have to just cut and run is because their investors, their bank, wow, you know, mom and dad who gave them the hundred k to start their business that they're bootstrapping, are on their asses about you know, hey, run this business to make me money. Um, so I've had to, I've had the luxury of making decisions because I've believed in extreme independence from day one. Um, but yes, yeah, it's a tough. Can I, can I read you a quote? Yeah, there's a when I it reminds me of conversations I used to have with my students. So I was a middle school English teacher for ten years in the hood in Memphis and in Chicago, and uh, there was a email a very very uh, little well known uh, speech by MLK called "The New Negro," and I used to read it because I think it talked about values that oftentimes don't get placed in the context of social justice or you know colonialism or you know anti blackness. But I think this it kind of shows how these political realities oftentimes affect our moral realities and they force us to make decisions that oftentimes uh, denigrate our moral integrity, our moral fiber, right? So this is the quote. Uh, I think I could best answer that question by first saying that, and this is in an interview on PBS, somebody's asking Dr. King, there's, there was this idea at the time of that, the new Negro. What is the new Negro? So the interviewer asked Dr. King this. And King said, I think I could best answer that question by saying first, that the new Negro is a person with a new sense of dignity and destiny, with a new self-respect. Along with that is this lack of fear, which once characterized the Negro, this willingness to stand up courageously for what he feels is just and what he feels he deserves on the basis of the laws of the land. I think also included with this would be the self-assertive attitude that you mentioned. They were talking about, like maybe it's about being assertive. But he said, and all of these factors come together to make what seems to me to be the new Negro. But this is the part that I think connects to what you're saying. I think is. This affects more than just the new Negro, right? I think this affects a lot of colonized people based on what I'm hearing. He said, um, I, I, think, um, I think also I would like to mention that this growing honesty which characterized the Negro today. There was a time that the Negro used duplicity, deception too, rather as a survival technique. Although he didn't particularly like the conditions, he said he liked them because he felt that the boss wanted to hear that. But now from the rooftops, from the kitchens, from the classrooms, and from the pulpits, the Negro says in no uncertain terms that he does not like the way he's being treated. So at last long, the Negro is telling the truth. I think like I used to read that and that was a part I had a, a conversation with my students about honesty, right? And like why honesty is actually a radical notion of like 
addressing anti-blackness and and moving past like this colonial because a lot of times we're forced to lie because you feel like it, the truth could get you killed and honestly the political reality is for a long time the truth could get you killed either directly because someone used violence or indirectly because someone leveraged their their access to resources against you because you were in you and me i think experienced that in our businesses like we're radical truth tellers in our business and you know that people leverage that in order to take away opportunities from you to take away contracts from you and so there's this fear that's even more real at origin with our, i call them our coffee cousins you know what i mean with our cousins our coffee cousins at origin we're just like man if i tell this roaster how i really feel or what's really going on like they're they're going to turn their back on me and i think it's our responsibility and that's why i was so encouraged by what you said because i know that moment is going to come it may come for me you know what i mean and to have the the knowledge to say like it's our responsibility to each other to to engage in radical truth telling even if we think it may hurt or you may lose the contract or we may whatever the right to be able to be a man and stand on your own feet and say what's true i think is a right we deserve to reclaim yeah. And that's so powerful to hear you going through that in real time and like addressing that and being able to just like, you know, fight for your for your for, for people in your motherland and say like, yo, I do. We deserve to be able to tell each other the truth here. And we're going to we're going to we're going to stand on our right to do that, even if it's uncomfortable, because we're not going to make the same kind of like Machiavellian uh, like trades for comfort or for convenience. Uh, we're really going to engage in real partnerships. And yeah, that's, that's, and yeah, that's powerful, bro. And I think that's what hit me when I really look at it. And I think about my reaction initially, I was more hurt than angry because I'm like, yeah. I'm here. I'm one of you. Yeah. I'm, I'm in, I'm in it, you know, I'm in it with you. And I, I felt like, man, you know, I, I think I almost thought to myself, like, maybe I'm a fraud. Maybe I think I'm in it and they still see me as an other. Um, they still see me like I'm a gringo, you know what exactly. I mean? Or like. When we're in Rwanda, they still see me like I'm a Mzungu. And yeah. and I think that, like, there's a kind of very rare trust. This is important. Wow, this is good. There's a rare trust that you get as a person of color who returns to origin to do business. And and we don't want to... The Kind of one of the scariest things to me is losing that trust. And and when someone interacts with you in a way to where... And I hope that people are on, on, the, on the continent, they're hearing this, man, like, there's a very kind of sacred for us, those in the diaspora who are returning home, there's a sacred feeling of like, I'm getting a chance to come back home and to build back together what we've lost together. And I think that like that matters more than any amount of business. Like I preserving that is more important than the cupping score. It's more important than the process than the new fancy hip process is more I don't care. All that stuff can go away if we can maintain that relationship. We'll always have an opportunity to come back and do business again. And 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 oh, back going back to what we we're talking about, because of my business model, right? I have the room to be creative about my product offerings because my customers are coming to me because they know it's a quality product, but they know it's an authentic product first. Exactly. You know what I mean? And and that then creates the space for me to be creative and do my work as a as a producer as well, to be able to bring what I need into the table to do to to do my work along the supply chain to get the product to the customer that they'll enjoy yeah by the way a thumbs up just appeared in front of your mouth while you're talking did you see that on your end that was crazy that's crazy i thought you did that no i don't know where that came from but um and i think that's, that's super weird. important shout out to the algorithm <laughs>
As far as I'm concerned, <laughs> you know, I'll give you an example. Now, he's my son as an example. A, I think the kid's super impressive and, you know, he's blown my, he's blown me away and like who he is, you know, he doesn't know it. He thinks he's always disappointing me. And I'm like, every day I'm super proud of the kid and impressed by him. But one of the, the things, mm-hmm. you know, when he went, when he started in high school, by the way, here's a kid who's homeschooled all his life, has always had a challenge with school and, you know, reading and stuff. I decided to put him in high school uh, for the first time ever in 10th grade after never being in school again uh, or before. And I decided to do it by moving him to another country where everybody speaks a different language. And he went to one of the Mm -hmm. hardest schools. First of all, the fact that he went there fully confident, excited, blew me away. But it's little stuff like when we talked about grades, he's like, well, what do you expect from me grades-wise? I said, listen, the grades are your call. You do whatever you need to do with grades. There's something that's not negotiable for me, and it's your values. And your values, as far as I'm concerned, and from who I've seen you become as a young man and, you know, not, you know, and that I've tried to instill in you, it's work ethic, it's honesty, and it's caring about others and, you know, standing up for people who need to be stood up for because you've been privileged to have the life that you have and others haven't. And to me, those are the things that I don't care if he comes home with straight D's. If he has that, I know he'll be good in life. Yeah. And, you know, there's an example, and it's yeah. funny because it's the little moments you think about where it's like, man, it, it, you know, the pride I feel in him. We were at the beach one time. I, I let, you know, he, he invited two of his friends. They went to get acai bowls at a little car, a little like cart, you know, like a truck. And they told me the next day that uh, the place was so busy, they got their bowls and they left and they realized they didn't pay. And his buddies were all excited, like, oh, yeah, we got the free bowls. And also my son just turns back and he's like, hey, you didn't charge us for the bowls and you paid for them. God, it makes me emotional just to think about it. It's like to have that like moment to be like, no, this is not who I am. I'm not going to celebrate stealing by somebody's oversight or whatever. And he went back and he paid for the bowls. Yeah. And it sounds like a goofy little thing, Come but on. it's like, if you have your values intact, I believe you're unstoppable. I believe that, you know, you're going to run into challenges and you're going to have moments like this, this moment I had with these producers in Nicaragua, where you're going to come to, you're going to come face to face with yourself and say, do I really believe these things? Because if I do, I got to go and put my tail between my legs and say, Hey guys, I feel, you know, like you guys kind of turned your back on me. This is how it affected me and it could affect my business. Let's talk through this. Um, and I gotta be honest, this is the same group that then the next year, the next year, imagine this, the next year comes to me and said, Martin, um, we have Roya, the rust, uh, that's hitting our farms. And I know we had a terrible time last year where we defaulted on you, but this year it looks like we can't give you any coffee again. They said, we, you, we, we can produce five containers. My is buying, I think three, it was another direct trade, super cool company back in the day that supports farmers <laughs> is buying the other one and the buying another one. And I said to him, listen, take your two containers that you can produce, sell it to these two people. Why? Because they will never talk to you again or buy from you again. If you don't, uh, supplied this coffee. Let me see how I can help you. And from that moment with 12 producers in Northern Nicaragua, my now wife went there and we were laughing because she like went to teach them how to plant chia, which she learned from agronomists. And she went with agronomists. She's like, all right, guys, we're going to plant chia. Here's this like 20 some year old girl from Costa Rica, like never touched chia in her life, like helping them like in the dirt, man, planting the stuff. And mm. we planted the chia and we paid the coffee loans they had for five containers of coffee that only two sold to these other roasters and uh, trader and the other three containers worth of coffee we paid with chia money. 
because I overpaid them for the chia. And I learned so much. And this is why being in the trenches with producers. Well, that's so gangster, though. That's so gangster. Yeah. I'll tell you what's even, what even felt better. They had a loan, the loan that was threatening to call, to basically call the loan because they couldn't pay it back. The collateral was farms. So farmers were going to lose their land to this social lender. So once we did the chia, I said, hey, I'm going to pay these guys. But before I said, I'll, I'll tell you what. I don't want to pay you guys and then you guys just pay the bank. I want to understand this bank relationship. So let me kind of step in there as the bad guy. You know, let me tell them that, you know, I want to make sure they get paid, but I want to understand the terms. So I flew to their offices where I can't say where they were located, but they're somewhere in Latin America. And I sat down with them and I learned that they were paying, uh, producers were paying 19% interest, 19% interest during times when interest rates were they're, they had, I think, 14 farms collateralized, and they were just paying penalties and interest just, you know. And I said to them, I said, here's the deal. I'm going to buy Chia from them, which has nothing to do with these contracts, but I want to make sure that, you know, these guys are protected. But we need to renegotiate the interest rate, and we need to have this at 7%. You need to, re you know, remove all the penalties and fees. And the founder said to me, well, I'm running a business too, and my investors expect a return. And I said, that's great, but don't call yourself a social lender, right? Don't. But anyway, the reason I mentioned the story is wow. because I learned so much through by being by being engaged. And I think it's so important that in what we do and if we want to really make an impact, we need to learn. We, there's so much to learn and you Gotta can really, be really learn by being there. Um, super yeah. important. And that's man. That's the thing. Like when I when I when we went to Africa for the first time and, you know, you were one of our sponsors for that. I, I was looking at the the industry and what a lot of like black owned coffee businesses were were talking about, and a lot of us were talking about our connection to coffee as minorities, and, but very few people were talking about the specific connection that African descendant people have to coffee, to the first people who discovered coffee in in in, in the world who were African, right? And much less, like, few people were going back to actually hear the perspective of those people who had discovered it and to reintroduce that, that into, like, our business models and how we communicate coffee to customers and the types of products we offer. And I thought it was important for if I'm going to have integrity to be able to, to, to really stand on saying, you know, what my shirt says, which is that we want to make coffee black again. Like, it has to be more than just an aesthetic. It's got to be more than a T-shirt. It's got to be more than just saying I'm going to copy and paste the same business model from every other e-commerce business company. I'm actually going to like, if I really mean that and just instead of just palette swapping, like doing colonial business with a, with a, with a, with an indigenous face, you know what I mean? Like I actually need to do this in a way where I'm like honoring the practices and beliefs of the, of the, the pre-colonial practices and beliefs of the people who grow this. And so that led us back to Ethiopia for the first time. And I think like those values are what create space moving forward to pivot and to innovate, to continue to hold on to those values when you encounter the kinds of challenges like the ones you're mentioning, man. Yeah. And that's so powerful. And a big part of that is just being there. And that was what I noticed a lot of like the origin trips that happened were like these like history baristas going generally to like Columbia to like a fairly wealthy farmer's farm, which is like, no shade, that's cool. If that's the experience you have and you learn and that changes what you do, dope. But I was like, man, there's a perspective I'm just not hearing. And to do that, I got to go to like fairly poor farmers' farms in Ethiopia to learn about their you know, indigenous pre-colonial perspectives and realities. And that's what I have to bring back to my community. Because in the white, the black community was like 
coffee as it is isn't doing it for us. Like the thing we're hearing about, the French thing, the Italian thing, espresso, macchiato. Like, like I'm not interested in that. And I was like, that's not the only story. In fact, that wasn't even the story. It wasn't the first story. And so like going back to that is important. And this is important, man, because like, you know, we're, we're doing the Black Barista Exchange program this year. We're taking four Black baristas to have that same experience this year who've never been to Africa. And then we're going to bring four continental baristas next year. And these are all very sound, easy to say, but like they've been super hard to do, like super hard to do. And like this conversation with you is honestly so encouraging because it's reminding me why I'm doing it. Like I know why I'm doing it, but like what's the perspective that's missing if we don't do this, right? Because like, I don't know who else is going to do it if we don't. You know, I don't, it's just like people are just going to be focused on profit and they're going to ignore the, the the communities that produce the products that we want to profit on. And I think that that's wrong. I don't think that's the way forward. And honestly, it's not the business model we chose to participate in. So I'm excited about this conversation and, and getting to talk to you. Um, maybe that's part of the model. Right? We, for we, a minute, you know, man. I know. I think the goal was to yeah. be focused on this one and, and talk about a business model. But maybe the, the reality is also the core of the business model is the soul, right? The heart of it. The You know, mm-hmm. you have to have the purpose and the in the, the value fortitude to have your values out there in a world where look i always tell people all the time look i think capitalism is the greatest opportunity to right a lot of wrongs unfortunately capitalism was used to create those wrongs and i think people like you and i and there are a lot of people that are yeah. capable of doing that the reason we're capable of it is because we're leading with our hearts we're leading with with our values with our purpose and you know that's the ultimate model right because it mm-hmm. makes you have to figure it out. And, yeah. you know, for me, obviously with the figuring out means create the boxes and understand them. And, but look, if you're just a person saying, I'm going to help black people, I'm going to help Latinos, I'm going to help these communities. And you're doing it just because that's the thing to do, because I can tell you five, nah, seven years ago and two, earlier, nobody talked about that stuff. You know, when we were supporting farmers and doing the things we were doing in 2008, people were like, oh, yeah, everybody supports farmers, right? I mean, like, yeah, people didn't know. People didn't understand. So what ends up happening is you see business models, and I've seen it after 25 years. Like, when you see the startups in a three- to five-year window, you can literally see the windows where it's like, oh, right now it's in vogue to be a craftsperson because microbreweries came out and started killing it. So now there's all these crafts, coffee, craft coffee people. Oh, now supply chain and your impact and the environment matters. So now there's more organic kind of, so you start seeing the trends and you realize mm. those companies, you know, they might, the soul isn't there. The values aren't there. The purpose isn't there. Yeah. Um, but I think at the end of the day, I think maybe the, the takeaway from all this is the business model is so important, you know, to me, it's everything, you know, as far, but maybe it's not everything because all the things that we talk about, that's the real everything because just like you, I was, you know, I tell people all the time, I didn't mean to start a business. I was trying to pay my way through a very expensive school that I graduated with $150,000 of loans and debt with. And I was trying to help an uncle. What school was that, by the way? Georgetown. I studied finance there. Yeah. Go, go on flex real quick. You know what I mean? Just let them know. I mean, look, I got an offer to go to Chase and make a lot of money. And when I bailed on it, I said, yeah. look, you know, I, I felt that like, and I think in the black community, you have a lot of that with athletes and people who succeed is like, I came here from Nicaragua from a revolution. My dad hasn't been able to work yeah. for nine years and I'm going to go take a job to go hustle somebody because in, 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 in trades, if you make money, that means somebody lost money and I'm going to go yeah. work in that world and, and become some rich asshole that just cares about, 
I can't do that. You know, like I, I yeah. where I came from is important. My my dad sacrificed so much just to give me the opportunity to be in this country. It's got to be more meaningful than just to go chase paper, you know. And I think ultimately, um, you know, I started this business to try to find my way through this debt that I was incurring through college, help an uncle who basically had gotten his farm back after a revolution and was building it back up, but the supply chain alone wouldn't let him be profitable. And I was like, okay, this is my calling. This is what I need to be doing. Um, and then I think within that, yeah, then we look, one of the things I tell people all the time, I think I'm very successful because I truly believe in what I do. And to me, it's, it's, it's my passion and my life's work, but I was blessed with a gift from my dad of, having a, a very good financial mind to me, that combination has been, you know, and I tell people, my son, you know, when he talks about college, I'm like, listen, if it's up to me, you study finance. I don't care if you do it in the best school, the worst school, a community college, a trade school, whatever, or online. It, once you learn finance, I was never taught how to handle money. I was never taught, you know, in our communities in Latin America or immigrants that would come here, you know, my parents were just surviving and getting by. We don't have those talks. So, you know, I guess the takeaway is business model is important, but having an inner purpose and value system, I think is, is going to be what helps you piece that together and then go out in the trenches and do something with it. Good. And yeah, from my last words, that's morbid. For the last comment I have for this podcast. <laughs> yeah, what's going on? <laughs> uh, yeah, it's just like, I think that the biz as a business that started with just, with heavy values, what I've learned in our conversations is that the business model is what allows you to sustainably execute on those lines, right? And values, strong values are strong or even a stronger business model. Oftentimes it's just a recipe for instability, right? Yeah. For, for a flash in the pan, for somebody to come and buy you out maybe and take your idea and turn it into an aesthetic without any substance um, or for somebody to copy your business as a marketing plan and systematize you and turn you into a certification. And then, you know, everybody moves on with your quote unquote values. But the reality is if you really want this to be something that creates generational impact um, and, and lets people tell different generational stories, then those values have to be institutionalized in a business plan so that they can be protected. Because in the moment, I can speak from experience, you can, when you're just pivoting and trying to pay payroll, if, though, if that is not clarified and the right person comes around and offers you the right amount of money, You'll say yes, because all you see is the financial opportunity, but you're missing out on the, the model that encapsulates the values you built the, the business on. So, yeah, yeah, it's a tough walk. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. I think every conversation we end up having, we, we come to the conclusion on this podcast of like, it's not easy. You know, it's not easy having values, yeah, integrity, not. purpose, and then running a black and white business that is all about like, do you have cash flow? Can you cover payroll? You know, you and I talked before this about how big my payroll is now and how it stresses the crap out of me. And crazy. Uh, but at the same time, the pride I have and the amount of money I see in the 401k plan that we put together that we match four percent for our staff. So it's it's heavy. It's it's a lot and it's a lot of responsibility and um it's not an easy path. Um, you know, yeah. but I think like I tell people, and I had a little bit of a you know, I made a comment on a person's post on LinkedIn who was telling, you know, a, an investor farmer basically who, you know bought a farm in Latin America and then talks about how we, you know, the industry needs to treat farmers better. And it's like using the, the voice of the poor farmer to try to gain sales. And I'm like, well, first of all, and I didn't say anything, but I said, listen, here's my take on it. If there's a wrong in the world and you're, you can do something about it, just change it. Just do what you can in your part. Don't ask other people to change it for you. 
Don't blame yeah. the consumer. Don't scream to the, from the highest mountain that just start, just go. And Enjoy. you and I have talked about that people see that, you know, people in your community see it, people in my community see it. Companies exist today because you and I exist. People no are problem. in this industry because we're in this industry. And yeah, man. a lot have reached out to me. Some don't because in my culture, there's a lot of ego and kind of like jealousy and it's kind of sucks, but it's a reality. But all we can do is start, right? And if we don't, then we're part of the problem, in my opinion, because we're just asking somebody else to, hey, come fix this thing. And, you know, I don't want to do the heavy lifting. So, you know, just, hey, you consumer, pay more. Uh, fix these problems that this yeah. industry has created. I think uh, man, that's just our reality, you know, and I love it, to be honest. And then I hate it. <laughs> you know, I think that's going to be the hmm. thing that, you know, the last conversation we, we talked about that uh, kind of takes a party. But, you know, it's it's uh, it's it's so necessary. It's so needed. And, I, you know, I always tell you, like, I think your emergence in this industry was so necessary, was such a breath of fair share. Um, I'll be honest with you, full transparency, like I'm jealous of it because I think the black community you're getting so much more visibility that like, I don't think my community will ever get, you know, I think my community is like in this weird, like in between, like, you know, obviously, you, you know, the black community has had very, very real suffering and very, you know, measurable and visible. And I think my, my community has been just more marginalized. You know, we've just been kind of like, they're the immigrants, they're the, the gardeners, they're the people that clean the pool. And so, yeah, I don't think we have that voice, and but I guess in a way it's 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 good because we didn't have to we didn't suffer as much as the black community suffered at least you know. In and it's like it's hard to say who suffered more because you think about the Latino community, like the Latino community and the indigenous community are very like those are like very small blurred lines, and like the indigenous community in America has lost everything. You know what I mean? But it's the thing that's interesting is hearing you talk about it, you know, like I got, I'm here and like one of my friends is in the studio with me. Um, I, I mentioned my man Tremaine from Padiri Coffee Co. Like he was just listening to our conversation. It was like, bro, there's so much hate in the black community at the same, that crabs in a bucket mentality where people, I think just me and a group of people have chosen to do something different. Like we've yeah. chosen to kind of reject that norm and to go back to the MLK code. Like we've chosen to tell the truth to each other and celebrate the truth with each other and that's the new norm that's the new negro that's the new minority whatever that we want to we want to normalize and i think that to me you are that voice that like has spoken so much in the latino community like it's funny because a lot of times me and the homies will be talking and we're like bro we envy people in the latino community i mean one just like yo there's a shared language that's not english that's dope you know what I mean? It's like, yo, it's so it's so so normal for me to have for like for there to be an idea of Latino coffee culture, and I think maybe this is what should, we should get into in the next culture for episode. But for African Americans, there really is no concept of like black coffee culture. It was like something we're discovering, which is one of the biggest reasons why I wanted to go to Africa to start giving us reference points on what what it could look like, and that's why we do the anti gentrification coffee club and coffee cyphers and all the things that we do. But like. Man, I think that it's so much of that has been inspiration from seeing how Latinos have created such a dope coffee culture that is like where it's like a thing to be. Oh, I'm Latino. I drink coffee, and like I want to find out what this like for African Americans and, and other people in the Black diaspora. So maybe the, maybe the next episode we should talk about like some of the connections that we see, you know, and, and the things we've learned from each other ethnically, cu <laughs> ethnically, <laughs> culturally. 
<laughs> in the ethnic aisle. You know, what are some things we learn from each other in the ethnic aisle, you know? Yeah, man, definitely. We'll try to stay focused. But, you know, I think at the end of the day, the beauty of this podcast is even if we don't stay fully in lane of, of the topic, I think hey, there's so unfiltered. many things to talk about. Yeah. Yeah, it's exactly. unfiltered ground. You know what I mean? Like, we we going to let it flow. And I think one of the things we should start doing is looking to talk to guests. I mean, there's plenty of people in the industry that I think we both respect and I think we'd like to have conversations with and be part of, you know, creating platforms for and, you know, being part of their platform. And, you know, I think the more voices, the better. So I think having guests is going to be a a good move for us as well. Come on, man. Maybe we can get one of our favorite uh, Q graders on on an episode, you know, if you know who I'm talking about. Uh, I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) You remember the Instagram post? No, I'm joking. I'm I'm just pleading the fifth. I don't know. <laughs> oh yeah, I don't know. I know what. There are no droids here. No, I agree. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm with you. Yeah, maybe we could get. We'd be cool. We got some folks definitely who I love to have. So, dope, man. Well, right, man. Uh, but if there's nothing else, bro, thank y'all. Thank everybody for tuning in. Make sure you share this. Leave a comment. And we want to know what some things you guys want to talk about, and let us know what you what you gained out of this. Like. Martin really just walked through how to build a business model. And uh, if you're like me, you're coming from a community or background where like, you know, you're from the arts or you're in social impact or activism or education or nonprofit work, like really valuable information here. And I feel honored to be able to have been getting this over the last couple of years through our relationship. And I'm excited for more folks to be able to tap in and learn. Thank you, man. Clearly you're the marketer. Uh, you know, I just like these conversations. <laughs> I, I do be doing my thing, you know what I mean? Like, that's, that's, I feel like when you combine my dad was a preacher, my mama was a teacher, and I'm a rapper, it's like that's a, that equals marketing somehow, you know? So, yeah. No, I appreciate man. this conversation. Well, hey, man, man, I appreciate, appreciate your y'all. friendship. And, you know, we'll see you next week. All right, buddy. Yeah, we got to do one of these in person soon, too, bro. It's going to be crazy. Definitely. All right, man. Till next time. For sure. Peace, bro.